From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out tonight. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The House of Representatives will vote on a coronavirus relief bill that includes a billion dollars for the Technology Modernization Fund. The bill includes 15 weeks of extra paid leave for federal employees. FCW reports the paid leave will be available through the end of the fiscal year. Paid leave for contractors the pandemic has affected will run through the end of the fiscal year as well, according to a provision in the Senate's relief bill. The benefits expire now at the end of the month. FCW reports the Senate passed the contractor amendment 93 to 6, but the full bill passed by only a 50 to 49 vote. The F-35 program needs a scrub, according to the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Congressman Adam Smith told a Brookings Institution online forum Friday the Air Force's F-15EX could be a model for other services to add to their fleets. USNI News reports Smith calls the size of the defense budget, quote, the least important thing we should talk about. Government Accountability Office's new high-risk list adds two items and removes one. Comptroller General Gene Dodaro told Government Matters yesterday that just because an item is off the list doesn't mean it's out of mind for the GAO. Greg Giddens is partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting and former Chief Acquisition Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Thanks for joining me, Greg. What were your biggest takeaways from this uh, version of the high-risk list? Uh, I had several takeaways. I think the first is the enormity and complexity of the issues that our federal government is trying to tackle. You know, I thought about President Theodore Roosevelt's man in the arena uh, quote, uh, and I think we're just so blessed to have men and women that are working in the arena and working so hard to bring change, and it is hard. Uh, I, I think another takeaway was perseverance count. You did mention one of the items was taken off the list, and some people thought the list may be like a Hotel California list, <laughs> uh, right? You can uh, check out, but you can't leave. They were on the list since, I think, 1997, right? It's been over 20 years on the list, uh, but really through hard work, looking at their infrastructure, reducing some of the leasing footprint, uh, taking a look at the systems they use to manage and monitor, and really just taking a very pragmatic approach to working through the milestones and the action items that GO laid out, they got off the list. And you're talking about the, the DOD infrastructure piece, of course. Um, what do you think are the takeaways maybe for other items that are on the list in terms of, you know, um, that, that light at the end of the tunnel you're talking right. about, just sticking to it? Yeah, I, th I think it's sticking to it and it's looking at the framework. I mean, one of the things, the high risk list and the way that GAO does their assessment, it it's really provides the blocking and tackling that's needed for good program management. It talks about five different areas that you need to focus on. Leadership, capacity, which is all about resources, having a plan of action, monitoring that plan of action, and then looking for the results you're getting with a little feedback loop to make sure you adjust as you go. And, and those things, while they might not be sound so exciting, they're really the blocking and tackling of, of how big projects and good program management gets done. Sure, and, and you of course heard uh, Gene Dodaro saying that, that these items are not forgotten once they get off the list. How, how will or should GAO keep track of these areas that you know, have, have been removed? Well, they, they should keep track of them. You don't want to you know, lose the progress that's been made. Uh, and, I, and I think he did a great job. He talked about how they're gonna do a lighter touch and there's some interwoving or interweaving between uh, this item and a couple more that are still on the list. Uh, and DOD will still have a responsibility to monitor this. You, you wanna keep tracking these kind of items until they get to a point of irreversible momentum. And once they get that irreversible momentum, you can really pull back and, and it will become then the new habit of the organization and how it moves forward. 
you kind of hinted that some of these areas may be connected. What trends have you seen in the high-risk list? Are there um, specific areas you think that are, are just hard or problematic for the federal government, you know, writ large? There are some areas, I think, that are really hard, and it's borne out in looking at the list. Uh, one of the trend lines is there is no trend line. Uh, about two-thirds of the items didn't make any progress for the last two years. Uh, and the handful that made positive progress was scattered across the items. Uh, the, the troubling trend was that about 60% of those that lost progress, lost that in the leadership, and that's the area that's most critical uh, of the five elements that GAO addresses. And that, I think, is, is concerning, uh, losing that leadership focus. What do you think can be done there? Are there, uh, are there suggestions or recommendations you have in terms of getting that leadership where it needs to be to address these items? I, I, I think uh, while OMB uh, has a lot of role in, in leadership, and particularly it was recognized in the IT operations and maintenance about uh, supporting from a leadership role, I, I think it's necessary but not sufficient to have leadership out of OMB. We have to find a way to push leadership down to the agency level uh, and have that accountability uh, with their chief accountability officer and have some way perhaps even to tie that back to the budget with OMB then having the budget as an ultimate way uh, to engender focus and support at the leadership level within the agency. And can you give us some insight into, you know, how do agencies um feel about these items when they have, you know, an area that's on the high risk list? How big a priority is it or does it vary by agency? I think it varies by agency. Uh, some will look at it as kind of uh, a mark of failure, uh, but really if you look at the items that are on the list, these are really big items. This is not like buying paper at Staples. We're really trying to do as a government some really hard big things. Uh, and I think most organizations as they work with GAO, they recognize the value GAO can bring in this process and to a degree it brings some breath of fresh life into some of the program offices that have perhaps been struggling with this without the right resources and without the right leadership support. And being on the list can highlight that and, and bring uh, some visibility, not exposure, but visibility uh, in a way that can actually help them move forward. Uh, and, and what items on the list do you think you'll be watching going forward? Are there some areas that are of particular interest? Uh, well, the IT operations and acquisition is certainly of interest. I've worked uh, closely in both of those worlds uh, in my federal career, uh, and it's worth uh, paying attention to. Uh, we spend over $90 billion a year on IT, which is, uh, I think, around $250 million a day. And, you know, even in this town, uh, that's a lot of money. Uh, and it is so involved in how our government delivers uh, for its citizens. Uh, so it's really important uh, to get that right. Uh, so that's one that I'll certainly be watching. Do you think that you're seeing uh, progress there, you know, across the federal government, or, or how's what's your take on it right now? I think there is some progress on there. There's another one where I think down at the agency level, there's more work to be done. You know, it's been many years since Patara has passed, which laid out the roles and responsibilities and authorities at the CIO. Uh, but I think 21 of the 24 federal agencies still have not taken the, their practices and changed them to align with what the law and the regs have said that the CIO needs to be involved in. So I think that's, a, that's an element that really needs to be addressed so that we can make uh, sound progress in this area. Thanks for your time, Greg. Thank you. Up next, the latest on the stimulus bill that just passed. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what it means for the federal government. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The latest $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill includes $1 billion for the Technology Modernization Fund. The Senate voted on the bill's amendments over the weekend. Caitlin Emma is a budget and appropriations reporter at Politico. Thanks for being here, Caitlin. Uh, what updates do you have on the stimulus bill? What, did, what happened over the weekend? Right. Well, we uh, saw a lot of action over the weekend. Um, the Senate was sort of delayed in this process uh, known as Votorama, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's sort of this all night marathon voting session on amendments. Uh, it was delayed for about nine hours because Democrats sort of ran into a snag with uh, federal unemployment benefits. They could not agree on a path forward um, for essentially like a whole day. So. Finally, by Friday night at around 11 p.m. at night, they kick off this uh, sort of all-night amendment voting session after you know agreeing on a path forward with unemployment compensation. Uh, eventually, Democrats agreed to provide $300 a week in boosted unemployment benefits through September 6th, along with some um, essentially tax relief for laid-off workers. Uh, with certain income thresholds. Essentially, Joe Manchin there was the holdup. He didn't like the previous agreement. So we saw the all-night voting marathon session. Uh, Saturday morning, the Senate passed the bill. So now we're heading into a new week, of course. Uh, the House is expected to pass this bill as soon as Tuesday, and it looks like, you know, for, for the most part, Democrats are, uh, you know, they have the lockstep support that they need to pass this package. So it's expected to pass the House, you think, pretty easily? It should. Uh, there was some progressive sort of, you know, rumbling last week. Uh, obviously, the Senate made some changes to the package. Like I said, there was sort of this last minute major change on unemployment benefits. Essentially, the House has already passed this bill and they provided, you know, $400 a week in boosted unemployment benefits through August. This new change would provide $300 a week, but it would stretch it out until September 6th, while also providing some tax relief for workers because there's been this concern that uh, workers are being saddled with like big tax bills uh, because they were receiving unemployment benefits and they didn't expect to receive these bills. So that's a new major change. There was some progressive rumbling about, you know, why are we scaling back benefits? Why are we adding new income thresholds to stimulus checks? But for the most part, it seems like Speaker Nancy Pelosi has the support that she needs to pass this bill. And, you know, as folks are well aware, Democrats have a very narrow majority in the House and Senate. They really can't afford to lose, you know, very many votes at all. Sure. Assuming the House then does pass it, what do you think the timeline is for um, President Biden's signature? You would assume, you know, as soon as possible. Obviously, a piece of legislation like this is a big one. It takes a while, um, you know, once the House passes, it sort of has to go through a little bit of a, a legislative ringer there to get to the White House and get to a good position. But essentially, you know, Congress and the White House have been moving as fast as they can to deliver this relief before uh, federal unemployment benefits expire on March 14th. So, you know, we're a little bit early right now. Uh, they're in a very good position to hit that deadline and even hit it early. And I would assume that the White House wants to have this signed as soon as possible. What are your biggest takeaways in terms of what this means for the federal government? There's a very interesting uh, provision in there, a $570 million pot of funding um, for paid leave for federal workers. And this is a change from the bill that was passed by Congress in December, which did not extend certain paid leave provisions. Um, this bill does. It provides up to 15 
uh, weeks of paid federal leave once federal workers have exhausted their sick leave. And, you know, this is to apply to any sort of pandemic related situation, either the worker, you know, gets sick or they're caring for somebody who has COVID or uh, their child is enrolled in virtual school, you know, for child care purposes. So that's a big um, provision, certainly for federal workers. And, you know, like I said, the unemployment change was probably the biggest uh, last minute change that we saw in the Senate. Um, basically, the House now has to pass the bill because it has been amended. So that's why it has to go back to the House. But the unemployment um, benefits issue at the last minute was, was a pretty high drama one when it comes to sort of Senate action, you know, in terms of what we saw last week. Sure. Uh, what do we know about the, the Technology Modernization Fund and the IT spending piece of uh, in this bill? Well, like you said, the bill provides a billion dollars for the Technology Modernization Fund. And I think certainly heading into this year, we're going to see more focus on that from um, appropriators in Congress. You know, as folks know, uh, Democrats now control both the House and the Senate. Um, we have not officially gotten into the fiscal 22 appropriations process that sort of just seems so far away considering everything that's been going on with coronavirus relief but i'm sure that there will be a focus there among democratic appropriators on that fund um you know and now that this first major legislative priority is sort of across the finish line i think we'll start to see a little more focus on sort of just federal spending bills and, and action on that front and, you know, as going forward, what will you be watching here? It sounds like you're going to be looking toward um, the an introduction of a budget as well. Right. We have a lot of stuff going on <laughs> when it comes to the budget appropriations beat. Um, you know, certainly we're all waiting to see uh, President Biden's budget proposal that is delayed because they ran into some resistance from the Trump administration on that front. But also, you know, getting this coronavirus relief package across the finish line has been a major priority. Uh, there's still aren't top political appointees um, confirmed at the Office of Management and Budget. Clearly, you know, we saw uh, near attendance nominations sort of fall apart there. Uh, so OMB is still lacking sort of political leadership, but it is expected that the White House will introduce some kind of um, budget outline in, in the coming weeks, months. You know, I'd heard originally that could have been at the end of March. I think it, it's certainly a little bit more delayed than that. But aside from that, you know, Congress also has to um, uh, sort of take that budget into advisement and move on with fiscal 2022 budget caps, which kicks off the appropriations process. And, you know, certainly we might even see this use of budget reconciliation um, a second time. You know, this is the process that Democrats used to pass Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill. There's appetite to do another massive package on infrastructure and climate change and jobs and, you know, a host of other things that prevent uh, present a, a number of potentially, you know, tricky pitfalls in terms of the reconciliation process. But there's a lot of budget action on, you know, for the upcoming months and year ahead. Thanks so much for joining me, Caitlin Emma. Thank you. Up next, supplying more computer chips to the defense industrial base. Straight ahead in Government Matters, how to strengthen the U.S. supply chain. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv.
A new executive order from President Biden aims to address a computer chip shortage. The order calls for a 100-day review of the supply chains of key products to identify weak points and potential solutions. Lauren Thompson is a defense industry analyst at the Lexington Institute. Thanks for joining me, Lauren. What can you tell us about the latest supply chain executive order? Well, for starters, I can tell you it's very similar to the concerns that were expressed during the Trump administration. Even the terminology is similar. Basically, it is a two-tier executive order. It starts, as you said, by mandating 100-day reviews of four areas of particular uh, urgency, pharmaceuticals, uh, integrated circuits, uh, high-capacity batteries, and strategic materials like rare earths. But then there's a second tier of year-long studies into broader sectors of the economy, like uh, information technologies, uh, energy, and transportation. And, and what do you think this executive order's effect on the uh, defense industrial base will be? Well, in the near term, the impact will be minimal. To just, just to give you one example, one of their top priorities is addressing semiconductor manufacturing. Unfortunately, unfortunately if we started tomorrow, to build a new semiconductor fabrication plant in the United States, it probably wouldn't be done before the end of President Biden's first term. So the immediate impact is minimal. But over the longer term, what this shows is that there is bipartisan, or bipartisan, <laughs> bipartisan concern about our ability to actually meet future military and economic needs from domestic sources. Is this going to be welcome news to defense contractors? Do they want to see more focus um, on this issue? Uh, some of them do. The shipbuilders have begun to notice real single points of failures, three to seven levels down in their supply chains. They're concerned about not being able to get parts domestically at all. I think most of the other contractors are accustomed to dealing with allies. They're aware of the danger in the abstract, but they haven't encountered real supply problems yet. Um, what's the, the, the timing issue here? Why has this emerged now? I don't think it has emerged now, uh, Marjorie. It is, it's something that has become a focus within the Democratic Party over the last two years. A, a year ago, Jake Sullivan and a co-author in foreign policy warned that we're going to need an industrial policy to support whatever our grand strategy is. But it has been a concern since the earliest days of the Trump administration. And he did a series of studies, and frankly, the findings were pretty worrisome. You, you hinted at the fact that this is a bipartisan issue and that the Trump administration um, did do work on this. Do you see um, the new executive order from the Biden administration as building on that, or is there any sort of uh, change in approach there? Well, to some degree, it's repetitive of what the Trump people did. The earlier efforts of the Trump administration were, were not very good. They got better as time went by. Their last uh, report for the Industrial Base 2020 was actually quite good. Um, but I think there'll be some repetition before they come to almost identical conclusions to where the Trump administration got to, which is that we have to reverse these industrial trends and reshore some of these capabilities Otherwise, we will find ourselves in an area of great vulnerability five or 10 years down the road. Could you elaborate on that, on, on that a little more? You're talking about kind of the serious consequences. What, what, what does that mean exactly? What are the ramifications here? Well, to just take a few examples, um, you know, almost 75% of the world's semiconductors are made in Asia. There was a time when a third of them were made in the United States. And in fact, 
global demand, a third of it still comes from the United States, but only 12% of the semiconductors are now actually made in the United States. And what come, when it comes to packaging them, barely 1% is done in the United States. Now, semiconductors are used in everything from smartphones to smart weapons. If you can't domestically source these things in a national emergency, then you can't make those items in the United States. Obviously, it sounds like the Trump administration identified that there's a serious problem. We're seeing the Biden administration agree. What are the potential kind of solutions, you think? What, what recommendations or, or actions might come out of this? This is going to require a major culture shift. We used to think that our economy was so powerful and innovative that it would take care of these problems. But clearly, that's not happening. We've been deindustrializing for nearly half a century now, and for the most part, where we used to go to get these things in the United States has moved to Asia, to South Korea, to Taiwan, to China, to Japan. Uh, we're going to have to change our tax policy. We're going to have to change our uh, approach to how we uh, invest in these companies. And it may be that in the end, like Taiwan and like uh, South Korea, the government is going to have to pay most of the cost of building some of these plants. Just about 30 seconds to go, Lauren. You, you mentioned that this um, is not going to be a quick fix. What do you think a realistic timeline is, um, you know, if these actions were taken to see some progress? Well, I think it is progress that the Biden administration is echoing what the Trump administration said. But we're going to need a concerted, heavy level of expenditure and focus for at least the next 15 years. Thanks very much, Lauren. Sure. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. For a preview of each newscast, sign up for our daily program guide right now by texting GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.